Please turn in a Bible, if you have one, to John 17. We'll look at the end of that chapter today, verses 20 through 26. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Before we get to the text, uh, before we get started, we just uh, say that briefly, um, this sermon is titled Spiration. Spiration, that's not a typo. That's, uh, I'm actually going to define that word for you. It's an obsolete word. The dictionaries will tell you archaic, right? So technically, <clears throat> it's archaic. The, uh, it, it means the act of breathing, spiration. The act of breathing. Also, you know, these words have multiple meanings you see on different lines in the dictionary. Uh, it also means the act of breathing as a creative or life-giving function of God. God is the one who spirates. And it has the effect of creating and bringing new life. It also means the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, like we've just sung. That's what spiration means. That's really all I wanted to say at this point. So sort of sums up where we're going this morning. It's Pentecost Sunday, so we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Even though he isn't uh, technically the word spirit doesn't show up in our passage, it is about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, without whom we would not know you, we would not be able to confess that Jesus is Lord, we would not be able to understand your word, to receive it or be changed by it. We thank you that you've not left us without your Spirit, but you've sent him into our hearts to renew us, to change us from the inside out. So we pray that you would uh, do that work anew in us, maybe for the first time some of us, but continuing that work that you've begun in us through your Holy Spirit now as we consider your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do not ask for these only, that is, uh, Jesus is not just praying for his original 11 apostles at that point, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that is, people like us who have received the New Testament testimony about Jesus Christ. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, glory is a big theme throughout uh, Jesus' prayer here. We talked about it a few weeks ago when we started John 17. And we've talked about glory a few times before in John's gospel uh, so let me just give sort of a brief recap of what we're talking about when we talk about glory, which we see so many times here in, in our passage. We tend to think wrongly 
about glory as something that we accumulate, that I accumulate for myself, something that at first maybe we lack, and then we amass it to ourselves, something that that we imagine we can earn, we can achieve, we can obtain from others, maybe we even wring it from others' glory. First you do something that's worthy of praise, and then the praise is given to you. Then you get it. But that isn't biblical glory. That's not the way Jesus is talking about it here. Glory is something that we believe in one God who made all things. It's something that this one God, this one and only being God, uh, the one and only true God, he had and he shared before he created anything else, before he created anyone else. He had glory. He had it and he shared it before there was anybody to give it to him or to share it with. Glory is not something that God lacked at first and then worked to amass to himself. He didn't create everything in order to fill up a glory deficiency. God created out of his glorious fullness because he already had all glory before there was anything else other than him, before creation. He had all glory. God didn't make us in order to extract glory from us, to wring it from us. He made us in order to share his glory with us. In order to glorify us along with himself. So glorification, you think of that almost as a technical term in theology, you see it in the scriptures, glorification is what God does to us. Glorification is something that God does to us, it's sort of the final step of our salvation, so to speak, right? That's the, uh, the way that we usually understand it, it's the, it's the final, ultimate goal of our salvation, he glorifies us, glorification. So in uh, earlier in John 17, in uh, verse 5, Jesus asked the Father to glorify him with himself, with the glory that the Son had shared with the Father before the world existed. All right, so what did God the Father and God the Son share between them before God created anything else to be shared? Shared, shared God, God the Holy Spirit. So in our passage, in verse 24, Jesus prays that we would see his glory, that same glory, that we would see his glory given by the Father because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world, because the Father loved the Son and glorified the Son before there was anything else but God. The Father glorified the Son and loved the Son by giving himself to the Son in the person of the Holy Spirit. So Rodney Whitaker, and I've quoted this a bunch of times, sorry if it's getting old, but I think it's worth uh, uh, really sort of drilling it in. Rodney Whitaker says that glory refers to the revelation of God in all his beauty of being and character. Glory is a manifestation of God himself, not just a revelation about him. It's a manifestation of him. And Jonathan Edwards said that the Holy Spirit is the harmony and excellence and beauty of the deity. So the Holy Spirit is 
the love of God. The Holy Spirit is the harmony and beauty and excellence of the, of the God who is love. The, the Holy Spirit is the glory of the God who is love, which means the glory of the God who gives himself. The self-gift of God, who is God himself. The Holy Spirit is the very being of God himself, not just for himself, but given. Glorification through spiration. That's what God has always done, even before the foundation of the world, because that's who he is. He's the one who glorifies the other through the Holy Spirit, through the spiration. And we could say a lot about the Holy Spirit with regard to who the triune God is and of himself. <clears throat> we could say a lot about the Holy Spirit with regard to his role in the creation of the heavens and the earth. We could say a lot about the Holy Spirit with regard to his role in the incarnation of the Son of God when Jesus was, says, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And his role in Jesus' life. We could say a lot about those things, but it's Pentecost. And that's actually what Jesus is praying about here, Pentecost when the church received the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at what it means for the Holy Spirit to come to the church. Why do I say that Jesus is praying about Pentecost here? He doesn't use the word Pentecost. <clears throat> well, he says in verse 22, the, he's praying to the Father, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. The glory that you've given to me, I have given to them. So Jesus is praying for our sake. He's praying from a perspective in time that is sort of outside of what he's, where he actually is, right about to face his death. <clears throat> uh, he's praying from a pr perspective in time as if the crucifixion has already taken place and the resurrection and his ascension into heaven and his sending of the Spirit upon the church, as if those things have already happened. The hour of his glory sort of encompasses all those things. The hour of his glory, as we've seen in John's Gospel, it's upon him. He's said it's upon him because his death is about to happen. But the hour of his glory includes all those, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and uh, his sending of the Spirit to the church. So God <clears throat> glorified his Son in each of those things. You don't have a, a super-conqueror risen Lord Jesus Christ without him also being crucified. He's glorified as the crucified one. He's also glorified as the resurrected one and the ascended one and the, as the one who sends his Spirit. God glorifies his son, and actually that means that the glorification of humanity has already happened in Jesus Christ. God has already reached the ultimate goal for, for human reality in, in a sense, in a real sense. He's already reached it. He's already glorified humanity in the person of his son, Jesus. God poured out his glorious spirit on Jesus as one of us as a human being, just as he had glorified him, the divine son, before he was human, before the foundation of the world, when there was nothing else, just as God had glorified his son in eternity, he has glorified Jesus Christ in time as a human being. He has glorified humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So the, the glory of Jesus Christ that we see in the Gospels, it's the same glory that, that's been shared from eternity by the Father and the Son. In Jesus, God has treated a human being like God treats God. In Jesus Christ, in his humanity, God has treated him like God treats God. 
He's glorified him. He's anointed him. That's what Christ means. He's anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And at Pentecost, this glorified one, this crucified, risen, ascended, and glorified Jesus Christ, shared that same glory, his own glory, with his church when he poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. God treating us as God. The way that he treats God, he's treated us through pouring out his Spirit on us. Romans 5.5 5 says, that Paul says that this means God's love has been poured into our hearts, poured like Niagara Falls <laughs> into a little cup, right? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And that's, that's what Jesus is praying about in this passage. He says in verse 22 that the, the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. He said it earlier in, in verse 21, the way that the Father and the Son indwell each other, you in me and I in you, that we would be in them, that they would have unity. He's given us the Holy Spirit to that end. He prays to the Father that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. So he's praying about the glory of God filling the temple. It's the, temple, it's the, the prayer of our great high priest praying at the consecration of the temple. We've talked about that. He's praying about the glory of God filling the temple, just like in Ezekiel's vision that Jerry read from uh, our Old Testament reading, chapter 43 of Ezekiel's prophecy, his vision of the new temple. When the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost, the glory of this God who is love came and filled the temple, came upon the church. Before, before Pentecost, really it was only the representatives of God's people that are said to have the Holy Spirit. Kings and prophets and priests, you know, the Spirit, they get the Spirit, but only as representatives. Jesus Christ himself, as our representative, was the first of us to have the, the Spirit without measure, and now at Pentecost he shares it with everybody, greatest to the least, everybody in his church. His whole temple is filled with his glory, with his Holy Spirit. We are the temple and the Holy Spirit fills us with all the fullness of God. And that means love. That means love. That's what Jesus says, what Jesus prays about. It means unity with God and with each other, just like Jesus and the Father have this loving unity. <clears throat> it says in verse 22, I'm just going to keep reading this over and over again and sort of extending it out. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. In Paul's letter about the temple, that is about the church, Ephesians 2.22, he says, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. You, plural, not just you individually, you, plural, are being built together as the temple, the place where God dwells because his glory fills the temple, because his spirit is there, the spirit of the God who is love. Our very existence as the church, as the united church, our existence in relationships with one another, 
is owed to the Holy Spirit who's been poured out at Pentecost. You remember Pentecost. Remember what happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus had just ascended bodily into heaven, told his disciples, you just wait, it's coming. He sent the people the promised gift to be for the whole church. The gift that had been promised. They were gathered together in one place, and the wind, it says, like a great rushing wind. And that wind, that word wind is the same as breath, and it's the same as spirit, both in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, those, those words can interchangeably be translated um, from the same original word. <clears throat> the people are gathered together in one place. The wind came from heaven, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit rests on them like little flames of fire over each one. And they all spoke in foreign languages that they had not learned. Real languages. But languages that they weren't speaking before. And it was the reversal of Babel. It's the reversal of Babel. Um, Genesis chapter 11. The people had been united. It was one people. Common language. But it's a counterfeit unity. It's based on mutually agreed upon autonomy. It's a false unity that's based on selfish ambition. False unity that's rooted in me, myself, and I. Uh, I guess you're, you're about the same as that. A society where everyone gets along by agreeing, I'm going to look out for number one, you look out for number one, and as long as those don't, ha- you know, we don't have conflict there, then, uh, then we're going to be great. We can advance together, whatever advance and, and progress, make progress means. But it's a society where everyone gets along by, by being self-centered, and uh, where self-exaltation is unquestioned, it's supreme, has no reference to the Lord at all. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 11. It's not the unity of love based on the God who exalts the other. It's the unity of the self and a bunch of little selves running around saying, we're going to build this great. It's like a temple. It's like a monument, right? These people had sought to build a monument for themselves, <clears throat> really to be a tribute to their own greatness, reaching for the heavens, as if to say, look where we can go when we just put our minds to it. Look what we can achieve when we set our minds to it. This is the glory that we can get for ourselves through self-exaltation, collective self-exaltation. And it was pretty lame. They reached for the heavens with their building made of dirt and tar, But God had to, it says, come down to see what they were doing. It's not just that they didn't get very high, right, in elevation. And we've reached to the moon. God would still have to come down to see what we're doing. It's that they're laughably far from actually becoming gods for themselves, which is sort of the project that they were really about to become gods for ourselves and glorify ourselves through our self-exaltation. That was their true project, the the self-glorification project. If I can be great enough, I will get glory. Never works. Doesn't work. Give it up. You can maybe fool yourself into thinking that it works, but it doesn't. Not real glory. That's not how it comes. So when God came down... He thwarted that whole project. He confused their language. They all had this one language. But he confused their language. 
introduced multiple languages into that picture. He stripped away the illusion of unity, and he scattered them so that they left off the construction of the monument to their own false glory. And at Pentecost, God bestowed his true glory as a free gift of his grace. He bestowed his true glory upon his people. He provided a way to real unity that would overcome all kinds of barriers, all kinds of the selfish barriers that we have to to real relationships. Even the divisions of language and ethnicity, they're overcome in order to reunite peoples in the church. The gift of the Spirit at Pentecost had the effect of reunification. Restoration of relationships, reestablishing lines of communication, and creating relationships where there were none. Bringing people in to the church where they can have real connections with God and with each other. That's the effect of the Holy Spirit given to the church. Unity. Where there was none before. God built his temple out of not dirt and tar, living stones, living stones as a place for love and fellowship, a place filled with divine glory from the beginning, from the get-go. Not something we achieve, something that he gives as a gift up front. His glory is the glory of the triune God of love, the Spirit in whose communion the Father and Son dwell eternally. So God, he gave the Holy Spirit to the church, so that we would be one with his own oneness, the same oneness that makes him one, that's our oneness. The very same oneness that Jesus shares with the Father, so that the world would come to know the gospel. That's what it says twice in Jesus' prayer here. So let me just do 22 and 23 again. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So that the world would know the gospel. That's the point of the Holy Spirit given to the church. That's the point of our unity created by this Holy Spirit so that the world would know the gospel. Throughout this prayer you hear Jesus use such intimate language to describe his unity with his people, I in them, they in us, I in you, you in me, this, this mutual indwelling, very intimate language to describe his unity with his people, his mutual indwelling of them. And it's reminiscent, I think, of uh, the Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. We belong to each other. But this intimate experience of union with Christ, it isn't just for me to enjoy with him like a a bride and a bridegroom privately behind closed doors. Even in the Song of Songs, the groom makes love to his bride out in the world. And they bring the whole world into their beautiful love. The purpose of Jesus' prayer here, the purpose of our unity in the church is so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. So that the world may believe in God's triune nature, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that the world may believe in the incarnation of the Son, Jesus Christ. So that the world may believe in God's gracious, saving love, that he's loved us, even as he's loved his own Son. 
so that the world might be saved and find eternal life in knowing this God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus gives us his glory. This is why Jesus fills the temple with his glory and gives us his Holy Spirit to go out in his own mission. He was sent by the Father into the world, and so he sends us in the same way with his own mission. Mission comes from the word sent. Mission of love to the world. So God's life, God's own life, is one of glorification through spiration. The Father breathes the Spirit upon the Son, and in return the Son breathes the Spirit back to the Father, and they share the very life and vitality and glory of God in three persons this way. God glorifies us, and he breathes life upon us. He spirates upon us his own vitality, the relationship of the Father and the Son, and it makes us alive with him, and we breathe the same Holy Spirit in and out. Right? In and out. In, in, all the way into the divine unity. Out, sent out in God's own mission, speaking the breath, that speak the word of the gospel. We breathe the life of God into dead bones. We proclaim the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. Into unity and out to mission. Breathing. Spirating. Because our God is who he is, the God of this other-centeredness, even in himself, he's other-centered. Being brought in to his life means being sent out to others. That's what that means. So when you have a relationship with this God, with this triune God, with the Trinity, the further up and further in you go, the more you're flung outward in love for the other. In fact, God's triune nature is the only explanation for the existence of love. God's triune nature is the only explanation for the existence of such a thing as evangelism. In fact, God's triune nature is the only explanation for the existence of anything at all. We have the glory of this God, this other-centered God, given to us at Pentecost, for the sake of the world, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world, not just as a nice private experience to enjoy for ourselves. So, so what does this look like? Because it must look like something. That's what Jesus prays. Uh, Carl Broughton and Robert Jensen edited this one little book um, called In One Body Through the Cross, really great little book. Uh, and they say, invisible unity has no evangelistic power. Invisible unity has no evangelistic power. So we can't just say that the Holy Spirit unites us to God and the Holy Spirit unites us to each other in ways that are ethereal and heavenly and mystical, but not tangible and visible. You can't say that. Because it has no evangelistic power if you say that. If people can't see your unity, then it's not the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about here. If you look at the church... And all you see when you look at the church is divisiveness and splintering, factions and schisms. Then it defeats the purpose of Christ's prayer here. And you can't just make it right by saying, but really we are invisibly united by the Holy Spirit. Our unity must be manifested to the world 
They must see our love. They must see our unity. We, we don't establish our unity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you work hard enough, then you'll actually be united. We don't establish our unity. God has done that in response to this prayer, the prayer of our great high priest. God has glorified us with Christ in the gift of his spirit. He has established our unity. We don't establish our unity through our efforts. We manifest it. We make it visible to the world. Just like the ascension we talked about last week, the Pentecost is, is a public truth. It's for the whole world. The Spirit really makes a difference in the church regarding our unity. It's a visible difference, and that's the point of God's temple. It's the point of God's temple. The glory fills the temple in such a way that others see. His Spirit unites us in such a way that others see. And then they know that the, the best explanation, the only explanation for what they're seeing is this God. This God. The only thing that can explain a unity like ours is a God like ours. We have to tell people about that. <clears throat> at Pentecost, at first, they thought uh, the people there, when they were seeing the church, they were seeing the disciples filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, thought they were acting a little crazy, seeing a bunch of drunks, right? These people are just drunk. Until Peter laughs with them and said, no, we're not drunk. It's too early for that. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why we're overcoming all these language barriers here and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that you can actually hear, ways that you can understand. That's what we're doing. It's because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul brings these things together again, these same themes in his letter about the temple, the church. Um, Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I've got a little bit of a quote here from Peter Lightheart. Uh, he mentioned this this week on his blog about Pentecost. Though he condemns drunkenness, Paul implies that the result of being filled with the Spirit is quite similar to the result of being filled with spirits. They're filled with new wine, said the skeptics about the babbling disciples at Pentecost. It was a plausible mistake. For Paul, the Spirit doesn't make us placid and mild, quiet and retiring. When we're filled with the Spirit, we cannot not speak. And our speech breaks out in boisterous psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Being filled with the Spirit means being filled with music in our mouths and in our hearts. A marriage filled with the Spirit is full of noise, harmonious and melodious noise, joyful noise. C.S. Lewis wrote that a Christian society would be a joyful society, rollicking, lighthearted, exuberant filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the glory of God, the breath of God, we speak. We pray with thanksgiving. We praise our triune God. We sing to one another our delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give words of comfort and edification to each other because of our God-given love for one another. We pursue friendships 
with people outside the church. We share the gospel with others in our lives who don't yet know God. We even learn new languages to do it. Not just because it's cool to learn a bunch of languages, but because we've been inhaled into God's own life and exhaled out into the world, just as Jesus was sent into the world to declare God's glory to it. So there was an ancient church father, Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, He was born actually right around the time of Pentecost, born 35 A.D., Ignatius means fiery one. It's pretty interesting. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote to the Ephesians. The Ephesians are addressed in uh, Revelation when Jesus is speaking to the churches there. Ignatius wrote a letter to the Ephesians. It says, In your concord and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. He's sung. Harmonious love, different notes, right? That's what that means. Not, uh, not just everybody singing the same note. We're not all the same kind of person in the church. It's not just, hey, if this kind of person A likes to hang out with another kind of person largely defined by A, then they'll get along because of A. Like white people loving white people because we're white. English speakers loving English speakers because we're English speakers. People who grew up in the same hometown loving other people who grew up in that hometown because of that. People who went to the same college together loving each other because of that. Make it makes it pretty easy to love each other because we're, we all share these things. People send their kids to the same school. We all love each other when we do that, right? It's not because of that that Jesus Christ is sung. It's in your concord and harmonious love. It's when you love people who are different from you in the church, which is not natural. Is spiritual. That's real love, and that's true because God has glorified you with his Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Glorification through spiration. It's what God has always done. It's because he is who he is. And since Pentecost, in answer to Jesus' prayer by the grace of God, that's what the church participates in. Glorification through spiration. Peter says that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you all. So let him shine forth in your unique unity for the life of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are beautiful. Jesus Christ, you are beautiful. Holy Spirit, you are beautiful. We don't have you all figured out, but we love you for who you are and what you've done for us. We see clearly in the gospel, in the New Testament, what you've done for us in our lives, filling us as your temple with your Holy Spirit, giving us new love for you and for one another. This is only your work. This is only your grace. So we pray that you would continue your work and that you would help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray that you would help us to manifest this unity before others so that the world would see and know that you've sent Jesus into the world and that you've loved us, people like us, sinners, all different kinds of sinners, that you've loved people like us even as you've loved your own son. We pray for the unity of the Holy Spirit to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.